Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Noah Kogali back to the program. Noah, this isn't your first time on Moving Forward with Young Voices, but for those who are meeting you for the very first time, uh, take a moment and tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do. So obviously I'm a, I'm a commentator with Young Voices. Um, I'm also, I, I moonlight as a, a local government councillor as well, um, which is, you know, gives me a good insight into, into what's really, you know, on the minds of normal people. And then I also work um, for a member of the Shadow Cabinet up here in Scotland as well. So a good little, a, a good breadth of stuff in, in UK politics. Well, um, I'm, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at an article you've written and, and the headline is very captivating. And I, and I can't wait to dive into this in, in detail. We can't wean politicians off the NIMBYs, so we must get them on board with housing. And I'll admit, I thought that uh, not in my backyard was strictly an American phenomenon. Apparently it's not. See, I thought it was very much a UK phenomenon. I'm quite surprised here. It's a big thing for you guys too. Um, it's something that I think is an eternal frustration in UK politics that everybody, I think, identifies that we've got a problem over here with housing supply. Um, but everybody seems to be on the, you know, the same mind that if a party tries to go and solve it, they're probably not going to win an election, um, and they're going to upset all. You know, those old people that own houses already, they're all fine. Um, but they're also the ones that vote and they're the ones that really drive the political, political agenda. Um, so it's a real, real challenge over here. So, Noah, help me understand what uh, what kind of a housing shortage are you dealing with in the UK? So realistically, the UK needs hundreds of thousands more ho- homes. Young people broadly seem to have essentially given up on you know, ever really owning a home. House prices have, have gone up and up and up, as I think they probably have in the US since, you know, since the end of the last century. Um, and house ownership is, is down across the board, especially for, especially for people under 35. And the reality is the government aren't hitting their targets either. So the UK government have a target of 300,000 homes a year, which when you know, immigration alone is above that, that's not enough, but they're not even hitting that. We have an incredibly constricting a planning regime across the country. So that's you know, in Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. It's, it's incredibly restrictive. It's hard to build homes, but that means that, you know, the prices stay high um, and, and the vested interests are all kept very happy. Yeah, well, you you preemptively answered one of the big questions that I had, and that's, why is it so hard? You would think that the market would be able to, you know, provide homes if the demand is there, but um, talk to me about the regulatory situation when, when a person wants to build a home. Uh, help me understand, how difficult is it to work your way through all that's required? So you have to jump through a lot of hoops, not not least um, affordable housing developer contributions. So if you're if you're building homes, you immediately the council will turn around to you and say, look, if you're going to do this, you have to you have to create these extra homes that aren't you know generally as valuable as the rest of them, and just impose these, these small bricks that alone um, people aren't going to be too fussed about. But as a whole, you're looking at you know some quite notable increases in costs. Um, I, I, just recently, the Home Builders Federation. Have said that extra taxes and, and more regulation is is adding about 4.5 um, billion pounds onto developer costs every year. That's not an insignificant amount of money. And if if we want to you know really ease this housing crisis, something's going to have to change. Uh, lots of people have have fear mongered in the UK a lot, for a long time about us running out of space and this idea about the green belt, especially around London, that in reality is not a green belt. It is essentially just oddly protected areas. Lots of which, if you see pictures of them. 
are essentially you know very overgrown you know random bits of concrete that nobody's allowed to build a home on um and we have a serious problem in this country where uh, discourse for the for the past few decades really has created these misconceptions in people's heads around house building and what the real challenges are and what the fake challenges are um and the fake challenges yeah like running out of space, um, which is complete nonsense, uh, seem to do much better electorally. So that's what all the major parties have stuck with. But you know, there's a real opportunity for change here. And let's let's talk a moment about the the NIMBY faction. Um, obviously, if if they've got if you have a place of your own, if you have your home, I've got mine. I don't want to see that spoiled. I really don't want to see high density housing, or I don't want to see a lot of you know the, the neighborhood becoming more crowded. Um, how much political power do groups like this have? A lot, and and one of the one of the metrics that is often used for analysing how a country is doing is you know, the house prices. And when house prices start to come start to come down, people really freak out as if that's some terrible thing. Um, and the reality is that people of my generation, especially, and people that aren't on the housing ladder yet um, or might never be, look at that and go, "Well, that actually just makes housing more accessible." It's a very simple supply and demand issue. Um, and again, because because that's become looking at housing prices has become such an integral part of economic analysis in this country. And I think in the US too, it, it, you know, it's a pretty broad phenomenon. Um, it's again created this misconception that uh, if house prices are coming down, that's inherently a bad thing. Um, and look, when house prices have gone up so much, I understand people wanting to protect their investment. But the reality is that you know we've all got to do some tough things. We've got to make some sacrifices um, because or else these younger generations are in a lot of trouble. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, and I, I won't say I'm glad to see that that's the case elsewhere, but it's also kind of comforting to see, okay, that's not strictly an American phenomenon. It's happening everywhere. Uh, you would think that would provide some, some good incentive for, for leaders, you know, in every country and at every level to, to be a little more flexible in, in helping to provide solutions. Is there any chance of the regulatory burden being lessened in, in the UK? I mean, realistically, it's probably unlikely. So lots of that regulatory burden has essentially come out of the net zero project. Whilst in its own right, the net zero project, you know, completely commendable and trying to be climate aware, fine. But the reality is, is that's made homes much more expensive to build. Um, and we have to find a balance then between you know, the regulatory burdens that we're putting on developers and then also taxing them. And we, we have to find a balance where we're not just expecting the developers to shoulder all of the cost um, and the government needs to start easing taxes on them as well so that their costs don't just go up and up and up um, and provide more incentive to build more in the UK. That's the only way out of this. We've seen this in Scotland that there's you know, potentially um, gas, any gas heater and gas boilers are going to be banned by 2030 in new homes. That kind of thing is going to be expensive. Something like heat pumps aren't cheap. So th there is a challenge there coming down the road where it looks like more regulation is going to you know, get thrust onto these developers um, and there's going to be no real tax break to come along with it. Um, so you might just start seeing them pull out of the market and that really would be a calamitous situation for, for everybody. Uh, Noah, talk to me about the divide between rural versus urban thinking. Um, do do the populations in rural areas approach the housing situation differently than their urban counterparts? So I, I think their arguments are different. Um, and look, I live in a very rural area, um, and the, the argument that gets put to me a lot um, as a local councillor, and I, I'm not, I don't sit on planning committee myself, um, but people will still come to me with their concerns. 
Um, and the concerns that people come with are often based around infrastructure and the suggestion that we don't have enough space in our schools, we don't have enough space in our GP practices, um, it's going to clog up the roads, there's not enough parking, all of these things, lots of which are actually solved. So there's a frustration from me, who has access to all of the data, that we've actually got plenty of room in most schools across the country. There is room, um, but people use it, especially in rural areas, as you know, a, a cover for the fact that they, they just don't want more homes. Uh, and I, I think people have to start being honest about, about what their concern is. If you don't want more homes, you have to be able to justify that with actual statistics. Um, you, you can't just be making up nonsense arguments that are, are quite easily disproven. Is this selfishness that's, that's at the root of that uh, not wanting to share that space? Or is there, is there some wisdom behind, hey, let's, let's keep a little separation between us and the neighbors? I think it, I think it is almost entirely selfishness. Uh, not wanting, you know, houses right next to you. I, I look. I understand that there's a privacy element, but it is perfectly possible to create absolutely, you know, beautiful communities where you have got, you know, you're building up. You don't just have to build sideways. And you look at somewhere like Bath or Bristol, and it is living proof, or even Edinburgh, and it is living proof that you can build up three, four, five. Um, stories and have three, four or five homes there. You know, we don't just have to go outwards. We can, there, there is other dimensions. Okay. And, and last but not least, um, you mentioned that, you know, this is about uh, weaning politicians off of that NIMBY mindset. Obviously, these younger voters, the ones who are struggling to, uh, to, to afford homes and to, to find housing, they're becoming quite a, a voter block. And I assume their numbers are only growing. Is that likely to cause some, some shift in the thinking? Uh, in the long term, I hope so. Um, but until we have some younger leaders who, who have really experienced it, I'm not sure whether it will. So at the moment, essentially, the only uh, loud young voices in the UK are on are on you know the, either the far left or the far right, and they're never really going to be in power. So it's not particularly helpful. We need you know, the Conservatives over time to go for younger and younger leaders, which they've done quite a good job at. Um, and, and Labour need to do the same. So you've got people that have experienced these issues and understand how daunting it is. Um, because at the moment, it seems like there's a lot of lip service and not much actual action. Okay, again, we are talking with Noah Kogali. He is a Young Voices contributor and policy director for the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth. Noah, for people that would like to follow your writing or follow you on social media, where can they find you? So my Twitter is probably the best place. That's at Noah, K-H-O-G-A-L-I. I'm on Twitter and you'll, you'll get all my rantings there. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I am very happy to welcome April Liu back to the program. This is not her first time on the show, but April, for uh, those who are meeting you for the first time, maybe take just a moment here and uh, tell us about yourself. All right. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm so excited to be here again. Uh, so currently I'm working as a research associate at Libertas Institute. Uh, normally, you'll catch me writing about tech policy, AI policy, anything tech-related. Um, I'm your person. Uh, this time, I wrote an article that's sort of more personal to me um, regarding foreign students uh, being sort of, you know, gatekeeped and locked out of the workforce by bureaucracy and all that. 
uh, and I came up with some policy recommendations. So I'm really excited to uh, speak about it today. Well, first of all, I've got to say, if if you are affiliated with Libertas, you have my attention and you have my respect. I, I really think a lot of the, the work <laughs> that uh, that Connor and, and his team are doing there. Talk to me about the, the red tape. You know, you, you start your article with the words U.S. citizens only. Um, what does that mean for an international student who's looking for work? Right. So... Oh, what does it mean? It means that we're probably not going to get the job. Uh, normally, this happens when we're applying for jobs that perhaps are not e-verified if you're under OPT STEM, because that's a requirement, or um, a job that simply doesn't want to go through all the alleged paperwork and bureaucracy and all that, all those steps that they have to follow uh, in order to hire international students. Um, this is obviously these words are usually a huge letdown because we put in a tremendous amount of time and energy uh, into, you know, as everyone else does, tailoring our resumes, tailoring our cover letters and going through interview rounds only to be told, uh, you know, the, the company only hires U.S. citizens. So. I have to ask, what's the reasoning behind that uh, that hesitancy to hire anything other than U.S. citizens? Is this about protecting U.S. jobs, or is there something more behind that? For sure. Sometimes, I, I'm sure sometimes, uh, and rightfully so, uh, U.S. firms want to protect U.S. jobs. And some the nature of some jobs, for instance, you know, government-related uh, jobs, uh, they require you to be a U.S. citizen because, you know, it comes at national security concerns. And sometimes uh, U.S. citizens are just better, um, you know, their skills are more favorable for this uh, for a certain position. Uh, the reason why some companies may be reluctant to um, hire international students, though, is because they there's a large misconception that Hiring us is going to take away these jobs, especially in the STEM fields, which actually isn't the case. And uh, hiring us is going to just come up with a mountain of paperwork um, and some compliance issues, uh, which is also not the case. Now, and I believe you mentioned this isn't a matter of, well, really, there aren't that many jobs to fill. Um, I hear from a number of people in different sectors of the economy that there's, there's a real shortage of workers. So it's not like you know, well, these jobs are already taken. It sounds like it's more like we just have these these barriers to entry into the labor market. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, international students, by many reports, we help create jobs. So there's this NAFSA report from, uh, I believe, 2018 to 2019. It said that for every seven international students, there were three jobs created in the U.S. So that added up to a total of around like 450k wow that's uh okay so uh, the, obviously the 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 need is there but uh, but it sounds mm -hmm. like the the path forward is not as clearly marked what needs to happen in order to uh, to keep these students from being locked out of the workforce so i think that there should be a start with better educating all of the hiring staff, making sure that they actually know what OPT entails. For instance, OPT versus OPT STEM are completely two completely different things. A lot of employers don't like OPT STEM because it 
it requires them to be e-verified. But normal OPT, on the other hand, has no no requirements. It's all on the students' ends. We're the ones who have to fill out the paperwork. We're the ones who pay, you know, four hundred ten dollars for a filing fee. Uh, we don't add any additional costs in terms of hiring um, on the company's end. Um, and I think that it wouldn't be too hard for uh, the government to sort of come at, uh, implement these, you know, education workshops, for instance. So I talk in my article about the Environmental Protection Agency, which you know, they provide workshops for companies on how to uh, handle different waste. And I think that certain U.S. immigration agencies could also do something similar for U.S. employers. Um, another step, I think, is companies should uh, clearly disclose in their job posts whether or not they accept OPT students or whether or not they accept just international students in general. It would save both the student and the company a lot of time and energy in the application process um and yeah and how how does stem figure into this too you had mentioned that uh, particularly in stem areas uh, you know there's there's hesitation um I, I'm. Why would why would there be hesitation on the part of of the bureaucracy to to incorporate more you know international students in in those uh, those areas? So I I think it's more of a firm issue. I uh, so currently, if your school um, designates a certain program or certain major as STEM, then it's assumed that the employer would also, you know, align itself with with whatever your school says. But a lot of employers, because uh, OPT STEM is, it's got like this stigma, it's got this sort of, you know, they're reluctant to not comply with the law properly. Um, for instance, for me, I, I applied for a position for econ and the employer felt like uh, econ wasn't STEM. But at my school, it is. So there's, I feel like there's a lack of communication and, you know, sort of like an information asymmetry situation here. Okay. And and you had mentioned that uh, sometimes the, the definitions of STEM kind of get uh, stretched a little bit beyond, I think, what, what people would normally think, including in some cases, um, social sciences and economics. Yes. Yes, exactly. So nowadays, STEM isn't just traditional sciences anymore, like math. Uh, it's it can also encompass social sciences like politics, economics, and sociology. Nice. So, April, we've got about a minute or so left here. Let's let's talk about uh, again what needs to happen and and where does it need to happen? I mean, um, obviously, there are a lot of federal guidelines. Is there anything that uh, that can happen? Um, at a lower level of government that can fix this, or does this have to be addressed by those federal regulatory agencies? Um, I I think that it needs to be addressed um, by federal agencies because it's it is such a big issue. Uh, it has not it has gone unaddressed for you know such a long time, and companies need to start taking it seriously. Not just companies, but also you know government agencies as well. Uh, yeah, and I hope that they can come up with an efficient, more streamlined process. 
Okay. Again, we're talking with uh, April Liu, and uh, she is a Young Voices contributor as well as, did you say you are an intern for Libertas Institute? I'm a research assistant. A research, okay, assistant. Um, Tell us where we can find your writing, where we can follow you on social media for those who would like to see more of your work. Uh, So I've got uh, a LinkedIn. You can find me at April Liu. Okay, and your last name spelled L-I-U. Yes. Okay, very good. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. I, I mean, I don't know what your, your plans are in the future, but uh, it would be nice to think that, uh, you know, your time spent here is, is hopefully opening some doors and um, not too much red tape is going to be standing in your way <laughs> moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Okay, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome Young Voices contributor Jack Salmon back to the program. Jack, uh, for those meeting you for the very first time, take a moment, tell us about who you are and what you do. Cool. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me back on, Brian. It's great to be back here. Uh, it's my first time back this year. Um, I'm the Director of Policy Research at the Philanthropy Roundtable. And I work on uh, various issues as, as they relate to the philanthropic sector. So we, we look at issues like donor privacy, donor intent, and also regulations of the sector. That's one of the issues that I'll be talking about today. So we'll delve into that some more. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for The Hill. A federal oversight when regulatory burdens rise, charities suffer. And this is a bigger deal, I think, than a lot of people might, might understand. Um, Jack, in my experience, a lot of people support charities. They believe it's a good idea, but they really don't have a clear understanding of, of how the nonprofit world works. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the regulatory burdens that, that charities face that can actually hinder their ability to, to do good, you know, where people are trying to direct, you know, revenue or trying to direct funding in a specific uh, cause. Right. Well, that's something I pointed out in my piece. Um, in my opening of the piece, I pointed out the fact that the current administration, particularly at the federal level, is pursuing much more stringent regulatory sort of environment than, than prior administrations. The federal regulatory code is now somewhere close to 190,000 pages. Cool. So that gives you some idea of the extent of you know, just how many rules and regulations businesses are required to follow. And we know about the economic effects on businesses of regulations. But what we don't know about, which is what I pointed out in the piece, is the impact of regulatory accumulation on the charitable sector specifically. Now, the charitable sector is is, is very significant. It's often overlooked in the, in the grander scheme of things. But we're talking about 6% of the economy. Donors and philanthropists every year give almost half a trillion dollars to various causes, to various organizations working towards their charitable missions. And this is why I wrote this article in The Hill, to try and highlight the impacts of overregulation on charitable activity at the state level. So let's talk about what some of that regulation looks like, just so so people can understand. Um, you know, when, when we talk about uh, at the state level regulation, what are some of the hoops that, that these charities have to jump through in order to uh, be able to operate as a charity, for instance? 
So there's many sort of regulatory burdens and hurdles that charities have to jump through at the state level. The study that I cited was one that was published here at the Philanthropy Roundtable earlier this year um, by economist Wayne Weingarten. And he uses various measures to sort of weigh up the regulatory costs that are imposed on charities. So some of the things he looked at were startup costs, annual filing requirements, audit requirements, and also additional oversight regulations. To give some examples, um, some states have no annual filing fees, so they don't need to, to, to pay large fees every year when they're, when they're filing. Um, whereas states such as New York, are, uh, ch charities there are subject to annual filing fees in excess of one and a half thousand dollars. Doesn't sound like a, a large sum of money, but for a small charity, that, that's quite significant. At the same time, many of these charities at the state level have annual audit requirements. Now, audits can cost anywhere up to about $20,000. That's a significant cost for small charities, particularly when the, the threshold for, for meeting that audit requirement is, is quite low. In some states, it's only a quarter of a million dollars. So you could be spending as, as much as 8 9% of your entire charitable fund just on the on the audit fees. And so it's really, you know, these organizations that, that are working towards supporting communities, whether it's uh, whether it's a food bank or whether it's a um, inner city school funded by business leaders and philanthropists, rather than serving those communities, they're spending so much time and so many resources on these sort of filing requirements and these regulatory requirements. Many of them are also duplicative of federal regulations. So some states actually require charities to, to file not only to the state AG, but then also to file the same forms to the state department. And so they're having to do it essentially twice every year. And so it's really quite it's really quite burdensome. Yeah, I'm I'm resisting the urge to to make a note that uh, wow, some of the government takes some of these charities very literally. Like as when we want to receive some of that charity, why why the high costs here? I mean, it seems like that would provide a, an enormous disincentive for the private sector charitable organizations to to step up and be engaged in in all the various causes that they're engaged in. Yeah, it's it, it's it's really worrying. I I suspect. Many of the, the policymakers at the state level, they have this misconception. They they see charitable organizations as, as being synonymous with business. And so they want to apply the same sorts of regulatory burdens to those organizations. I mean, that obviously simply isn't the case. These are nonprofit organizations serving communities. They're not making profits. On the other hand, there's another worrying trend that we're seeing in, in some states. Over the last couple of years, we've seen bills in, in states uh, such as Oregon, where um, they introduced bills to try and require nonprofit organizations to, uh, sorry, they would only allow nonprofit organizations that to um, to comply with open meeting laws to essentially fully function as nonprofits if they had received public funds. And so there's this misconception out there that nonprofit funds are, are somehow synonymous with with public funds, that it's public money. And, and again, this simply isn't the case. These are donations. People have. Um, in, intent in mind when they when they donate to these causes when they donate to these organizations who are trying to support these communities and, and you know pursue, pursue their organizational missions I mean, interestingly what what the study that i cite in the piece finds is states that the five states with the most heavy regulatory burden compared to the states with with the least regulatory um with with, with, with the lowest regulatory burden the lower regu regulation states had about 30 percent more charities per capita than, than the most regulated states. And so we're seeing significantly more charitable activity. It's, you know, we're seeing more thriving civil society in the states that have a softer touch approach, that aren't pursuing these, these unnecessary 
regulatory burdens that accumulate over time. Wow. I'm just uh, only because I spent about a year working in a nonprofit, uh, you know, that's that's what really opened my eyes. And I was in development, which means I was one of the guys who was was reaching out yeah. to to write grants and to to access, you know, charitable organizations that exist for the purpose of disseminating, you know, funds to to worthwhile causes. I was shocked at, at how many different types of charities are out there operating. And, um, you know, just for, for people who've never been exposed to that, you may think, well, it's the Salvation Army or it's, you know, Goodwill or something like that. But it, it, it is such a broad spectrum of, of people and causes and, and you know, funds that, that are being uh, distributed. I think it would really surprise people. And, and frankly, I don't know how anybody could could in good faith make the argument. Oh yeah, this needs more regulation because we want right. to we want to keep a tight lid on that. I think we'd want to encourage it. I agree, and um, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that with that overview because much of the regulatory approach is is more of a one size fits all approach to these organizations, and that and there is no one typical charitable organization. They, as you say, they 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 vary in nature. They have different. They have different communities that they serve. They have different missions, um, but but there is there is some hope. Um, so, some some states are, are beginning to introduce legislate legislation that would require um, any, any new implemented regulatory requirements to go through the legislative process first. So it adds a sort of level of of oversight of those regulations, which is the opposite of what we're seeing at the federal level. Uh, this year alone, the states have. Indiana and Montana have um, both introduced some some legislation that's, that's sort of along these lines, the, the Charity Protection Act. So it, it requires those state legislators to to push those regulations through the through the state legislature if they want to have those new regulations imposed, rather than just imposing those costs on those charitable organisations. So those charities can actually spend less of their time and resources having to comply with regulations and spend more time advancing their missions and supporting the communities in need. Well, and, and again, it, it has to be said, we're talking about these, these are charities that are using money that is voluntarily given. It, it's not extracted from the taxpayers under threat of now you'll be in trouble if you don't pay this. So I would think anything that saves the taxpayers or lessens the taxpayers burden, or for that matter, the, the costs of government oversight would be something that would be welcomed. But it sounds like there are some mixed messages being sent from those regulatory uh, you know, policies, as well as the people and the agencies that, that create those policies, that uh, government seems to, to want a hand in, in that charitable giving. Unfortunately, that, that, that seems to be a trend that we're, that we're seeing. And again, it's this, idea, it's this misconceived idea that, that charitable funds are, are somewhat akin to public money, which simply isn't the case. And that's, that's a dangerous sort of perception that, 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 that we need to keep, keep a distance because it, it, it does have bad ramifications, one of the worst, of course, would be a chilling effect in the charitable sector. And what we don't need right now is is sort of less charitable activity. Um, you know, we're currently facing a cost of living crisis. We have inflation. And so, you know, it's it's very important that we have this thriving civil society, these charitable organizations supporting communities that need it most right now. Well said. Again, we're talking with Jack Salmon. He is a Young Voices contributor and a writer on economics. And Jack, for people who wish to follow you, how can they find you? Where, where can they find you on social media, for instance? 
you can um, find my my details as well as my Twitter handle if you want to follow me on social media at my Young Voices bio page. And if you um, want to reach out to me about philanthropic issues, you can also go to my bio page at the Philanthropy Roundtable website. Thank you.